If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Esther chapter 4. If you're visiting us and don't have a Bible, it is found on page 435 in the Bible in the chairs. And if you don't own a Bible, please take that as a gift from us. Esther chapter 4, I'm going to walk through the entire chapter. If you're able to, please stand for the reading of God's word. When Mordecai learned all that had occurred, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went into the middle of the city, and cried loudly and bitterly. He went only as far as the king's gate, since the law prohibited anyone wearing sackcloth from entering the king's gate. There was great mourning among the Jewish people in every province where the king's command and edict reached. They fasted, wept, and lamented, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Esther's female servants and her eunuchs came and reported the news to her, and the queen was overcome with fear. She sent clothes for Mordecai to wear so that he would take off his sackcloth, but he did not accept them. Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who attended her, and dispatched him to Mordecai to learn what he was doing and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened as well as the exact amount of money Haman had proposed, promised to pay the royal treasury for the slaughter of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa ordering their destruction so that Hathak might show it to Esther explain to her and command her to approach the king, implore his favor, and plead with him personally for, the pe for her people. Hathak came and reported Mordecai's response to Esther. Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to tell Mordecai, all the royal officials and the people of the royal provinces know that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard and who has not been summoned, the death penalty unless the king extends the gold scepter, allowing that person to live. I have not been summoned to appear before the king for the last 30 days. Esther's response was reported to Mordecai. Mordecai told the messenger to reply, don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from another place. But you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went and did everything Esther had commanded. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Bad news is inevitable. Bad news is inevitable. It is a part of life in this fallen world. We will hear and we will say bad news. It comes to all of us, regardless of who you are, your age, your gender, your class, your ethnicity. Regardless of where you live, in the city, the suburbs, or in the country, you will hear bad news. Many people think we are different in a number of ways, but one of the many things that we have in common is that our ears will hear words of bad news. We hear this daily. If you look at the news, 
It won't be too long of watching before you hear some sort of bad news. And if you keep watching, you're going to hear more and more bad news. You get on social media, you won't scroll for too long until you read some sort of bad news. It will come to us. Sometimes the news would affect us personally. Sometimes it affect our families, our community, community, our nation, even our world. And as we hear bad news, there are definitely degrees of it. Some news is worse than others. Like a broke ankle is bad. But hearing that you're about to go blind is worse. And depending on the degree of how bad it is, it has a way to proverbially, proverbially suck the life out of you. All will hear it. And though we all hear bad news, we don't always respond in the same way. Some respond with denial and rejection, thinking that if they just don't believe it, it'll make it false. Some people respond with suppressing their emotions, being stoic, as if it never impacts them. Others respond with despair. How should Christians respond? Some would think that Christians should be stoic about it. As if it is weak to express the emotions of pain and grief. I think Christians should respond with weeping, with lamenting, with mourning, with hurting. And in the midst of the hurt, in the midst of the pain, we have hope. It hits us, it hurts us, it perplexes us at times, but it doesn't cause us to despair because we have a God who is good at all times, and at all times he is good. We have a God who is good even when life is not. When seasons change, he does not. Which is why we can weep with hope. We can cry with confidence. Because of the promises that God has made. In his character, in that he is faithful to his promises. This very morning in Esther chapter 4. I believe it instructs us on how we are to handle bad news. A big idea from this morning's passage is this. Weep and pray with hope amidst the heavy trials of life. Weep and pray with hope amidst the heavy trials of life. I have three exhortations from us from this passage. First, weep openly. And pray, I mean, not, not my bad, I messed it up. Weep openly, hope persistently, then pray fervently. Those are our points. Weep openly, hope persistently, and pray fervently. For a little bit of context, in chapter 3, we saw Haman, the Agagite, be exalted by the king to second in command. The king commanded for him to be treated with royalty in such a way that you were to bow before him. But Mordecai didn't because of the history of ethnic tension between the Amalekites and the Jews. 
So in response, Haman, he plotted the annihilation of the Jews. He approached the king, got the approval, made it an edict, set a date of genocide of all the Jews, which will occur in 11 months. Word has spread. In this morning's passage, we're going to read of Mordecai and the Jews' response. It brings us to our first point, that we are to weep openly. And so Mordecai, he got the scoop, all the details, heard about Haman's meeting, the money that he promised, the fact that it became an edict. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 8, you see that he even has a copy of it. Well, how does he respond? Look at verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had occurred, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went into the middle of the city, and cried loudly and bitterly. He responded with great sorrow and many tears. Mordecai was brokenhearted and distressed over the threat of genocide for his people. Catch the wardrobe. He's wearing sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth, it is made of camels and goat's hair. This is a common wardrobe to wear to express grief and much pain. Think about Job in chapter 1. After the news that he has lost his children and his property, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. For our day, it's like wearing black to a funeral. One's external appearance is matching his internal disposition. He mourned greatly. And rightfully so, because news of this nature is devastating. Here we see institutional injustice among the government. The very people who has the authority and responsibility to restrain and punish evil is in fact perpetuating it. Government-sanctioned genocide. This news is devastating. Think about the Holocaust, how the Jews may have responded when they heard the news of genocide going forth. Think about Africans with chattel slavery. Think about the government permitting and not having any consequences towards the lynching, for the lynching of African Americans in the South. This tragic news is gutting. And we hear it very often. Think about wars, earthquakes, mass shootings, sickness, death, sudden tragedies. It has a way to, like, really break your heart. Sadly, life in a fallen world, these things are common, but we know that it's not right. It should not be this way, because what we see in Genesis 1 and 2, that when God created the world, there was none of that at the very beginning. These are the effects of the fall. When sin entered into the world, it had pearl implications where we hear and experience tragedy. And none of us are exempt, not even Christians. Jesus himself promised in John 16 that he said, in this life you will, will, will have trouble. So how are we to respond to the tragedies that are too numerous for me to name? Well, here we see Mordecai, he cried and he wept. And he did it openly in the middle of the city. He wasn't okay. And guess what? That was okay. In fact, his response is fitting when you hear news of death or an incurable disease or permanent disability to where one hurts and you acknowledge it because it hurts. 
In weeping, in our country, in our culture, weeping can be perceived as weakness. But there is nothing weak about weeping. Let me address the men real quick, brothers. You may have heard that you may be less of a man if you express any sort of emotions. And that just can't be far from true. The Lord Jesus himself was known as a man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief. And in John 11, we see Jesus himself weep. The reality is weeping isn't an expression of weakness. It's an expression of humanness. And so how do you respond to devastating news? Do you bottle it up? Suppress it? Or do you mourn and weep? The reality is, though we mourn and weep, not everybody is cool with it. Look at verse 2. It says, He went only as far as the king's gate, since the law prohibited anyone wearing sackcloth from entering the king's gate. Here, Mordecai was prevented from entering the king's gate because of his wardrobe. His garments of grief. Prevented because I believe that it would kill the vibe that they wanted to give off in the kingdom. They don't want, they want you to look and be merry, not mourn. He had to clean himself up before coming into the gates of the kingdom. And y'all, man, as I read this, it grieved me greatly to hear that this was the response, and it also led me to rejoice. That our God does not act like that. That access to his throne is completely different. Because he is a compassionate God and a refuge for those who are hurting. He doesn't stiff arm us in our pain. The king here is saying, don't bring it where God, the king of the universe, is saying, bring it all to me. In our pain, he opens up his gates, he gives us his ear, and not only that, he draws near to us. Psalm chapter 38, verse 14 says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. Psalm chapter 41, verse 6 says, God is our refuge and strength, a present help in time of need. And so, beloved, are you hurting? Whatever hurt that you're experiencing, God cares. In his love, he beckons you to bring it to him in prayer. Your hurts are not too much for him. Your burdens are not too heavy for him. He wants them because he cares about you. If a loving father has this disposition towards their children, come to me when you're hurting, then how much more our heavenly father? Look at verse 3. It says, There was great mourning among the Jewish people in every province where the king's command and edict reached. They fasted, wept, and lamented, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. What Mordecai did individually, the Jews did corporately. They fasted, abstaining from food. Now, throughout Scripture, normally fasting is accompanied with prayer. Nehemiah chapter 1, Joel chapter 2, Acts chapter 13, we see the accompany of fasting and prayer. And normally fasting is an expression of contrition and desperation, but it's also an expression of dependence upon God. It's the discipline to deny oneself food in order to seek God, physically reminding ourselves that we are totally and utterly dependent upon him and that we need his intervention. Here we see the Jews. They wept and lamented, crying in their affliction. I want to be clear, this is not a lack of faith, but instead it is a display of faith. 
drawing near to God in the midst of your pain. The reality is, even for us in Christ, though we are on this side of the cross and we are in the new covenant, the reality is lamenting is still fitting for Christians. Because we are caught in between the two ages. We live in this present evil age, and God's kingdom has broken in through the coming of Jesus, through his death and resurrection, and the proclamation of the gospel to where the kingdom of God is breaking into this age, and so we are caught in between these two ages. It is what theologians call the already and not yet. Already now, all who are Christians, we have salvation in Christ, saved by his grace, Adopted into the family, made citizens of God's kingdom, we are co-heirs with Christ. That is true for us now. We have salvation. And we still live in this evil age. We still experience the pain that comes from living in this evil age. We experience the pain as we await the consummation of God's kingdom. And so as we wait, we cry in our pain and we rejoice in the hope. Beloved, to lament is to acknowledge the pain while in faith await the fruition of the promises of God. In fact, lamenting is one's way to strive to not let your affliction and your season of hurt pervade your view of God's character, his love, and his goodness. As Pastor John said a number of weeks ago, to lament is to trust through tears. In the book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Pastor Mark Vrogup says, lament stands in the gap between pain and promise. It is entering the door of hurt and walking through the building with eyes of hope. In this fallen world, suffering is normal. And so for Christians, lament should be normal. In fact, God expects it and permits it so much so that there is an entire book in our canon that is devoted to lamenting, the book of Lamentations. We have Psalms of Lament. The reality is, beloved, to not lament is to not be in tune with reality. It is to function as if you live in a fairy tale, as if life and everything in life is always great. Now, for Christians, that will be true one day, but it's not true today. And to lament doesn't mean that you've lost your joy. It just means that the present pain of grief is overshadowing the gladness. But the gladness ain't gone. Just like even at times, clouds cover the sun, and yet the sun is still there. In your pain, how are you doing with weeping? In verse 3, we see here the Jews, though exiles, they wept as a community. They did it together. How much more should that take place among the saints, the church, as God in his grace through the sacrifice of Christ has made us a family? To where we, when we hear news that hurts the body, may we go to the body. But when we hear news that really impacts us, may we not weep in private and in isolation. May we not merely take it to Facebook and post it for our followers, but may we share it with the covenant community who is our family. 
Romans chapter 12, verse 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. So in response to the hurting of fellow church members, may we enter that pain, their pain as if it was our own. May our shoulders be headrests for the heads who are hurting. As one pastor says about his church, he wants the culture to be a place where the tears flow freely, but the floors stay dry. Because there's always a shoulder for a brother and sister to cry on. Verses 4 to 6. Esther was completely oblivious to what was going on. She's reported news about Mordecai. She sends clothes for him to put on. We don't know the reason or the motive of doing it, but she does. And it was because of his rejection of those clothes what led to an investigation of what was going on. In verse 7, It says, Mordecai told him everything that had happened, as well as the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay the royal treasury for the slaughter of the Jews. Haman disclosed everything, from his interaction to Haman meeting with the king to the amount of money promised to the edict of annihilation. Disclosed it all. Here we see, Mordecai and the Jews, they wept openly. They wept communally. Didn't suppress it. As weeping is acknowledgement of the grief, of the pain that you're feeling. As you read the Bible, beloved, there are only four chapters of a perfect world. The bookends of our Bible Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and Revelation chapter 21, verse 22. Everything else in between those chapters, as you read it, you will see sin, suffering, death, pain, and as you read it, it will cause you to weep. But also as you read it, you will see God's gracious promises and his work of salvation in Christ Jesus, and it gives hope. The very storyline of the Bible compels us to weep openly, and the very promises of God in that storyline causes us to hope persistently. And so we're to be a people who weep openly, we're also to hope persistently, which brings us to our second point. Now, full disclosure, the first point was the longest point. Look at verses 8 and 9. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa, ordering their destruction so that Hathak might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and command her to approach the king implore his favor, and plead with him personally for her. Hathak came and reported Mordecai's response to Esther. So here Mordecai is pleading for Esther's intervention. And why? Because she's in the best position to do it. She is a Jew. So this annihilation impacts her. But she's also the wife of the king. So she can have his ear. She has exclusive access to the king. But what this means is that she will have to disclose the very identity that she has kept hidden. That she was a Jew. Esther hears it. Look at verses 10 and 12, 10 through 12. It says, Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to tell Mordecai. All the royal officials and the people of the royal province know that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard and who has not been summoned, the death penalty, unless the king extends the gold scepter, allowing that person to live. I have not been summoned to appear before the king for the last 30 days. Esther's response was reported to Mordecai. 
And so she talks to her cousin, reminding him of the law and telling him the implications of his request, making known that very few people had access to the king. And she, in though she is his wife, she's not on that VIP list. If she were to go not being summoned, it would lead to her being killed, possibly. And this is for the king's protection. Think about it, y'all. Try to meet the president without being summoned. You will get God. Here Esther is making known, like, man, the chips are stacked against her. Think about this. Even if she went and he extended the gold scepter, the meeting wouldn't be personal and private. It would be public. And guess who would be there? Haman the one who is second in command and who has made that edict. Not only that, she hasn't been summoned by the king in a month. So the very love that he had for her five years ago in chapter 2, verse 17, is likely have grown cold. It's not looking good. So Esther is probably like, man, is there another way? Here we see Mordecai, he's concerned about the Jews, and the fear is real, but we see here Esther being concerned about herself. Like, man, you asking a tall task, one that might cost me my life. Is there another way? We'll look at verse 13. Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from another place, but you and your family, your father's family, will be destroyed. Mordecai tells her, Esther, you ain't exempt from this edict. You too will be executed. He gives her strong words. But in the midst of the strong words, peep the hope that Mordecai communicated. He says, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. He says, relief and deliverance will come. He didn't say that it might come. He didn't say that it can come. He said that it will come. Here Mordecai is speaking with certainty and confidence and conviction. And remind yourself of the context. This is in the face of annihilation. This is in the face of a government-sanctioned genocide, and yet Mordecai has confidence that the Jews will not be annihilated. Here we see, we don't see God's name, but we see him trusting in God's deliverance. And it's because God delivers his people. Think about the story of Israel, all the way back to Exodus, where the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. What did God do? intervened and delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. Think about the book of Judges. After they have sinned, they were placed in servitude, made slaves, and what did God do? Delivered his people. Go all the way to Daniel chapter 3, when the three Hebrew boys were thrown into that fiery furnace for their faithfulness to God. What did God do? He entered that fiery furnace and walked with them to where they were not killed by the fire. God delivered his people. Go all the way to Daniel chapter 6. When Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, what did God do? He sent an angel to shut the mouths of the lions so that Daniel would continue to live. 
God delivers his people. And that God who delivered his people back then is the very same God who is with his people and will deliver them now. Mordecai is confident in the deliverance of God. And what is this confidence grounded in? The promises of God. God told Adam that he would have a son who would reverse the curse. God told Abraham that he would have his offspring will be as numerous as the stars of the sky. And that in his offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God told David that he would have a son who sits on his throne forever. God made a promise that he will bring about the new covenant and that he will consummate his kingdom. And so Mordecai did not know how it would end for him, but Mordecai knew that it would not be the end for them. Because with God, every promise made is a promise kept. And therefore, in the face of the darkest times, we can still have hope. How much more should we, the church, have hope in the hardest of seasons? Because unlike Mordecai, we have a different and a better vantage point. We know the end of this story. And not only do we know the end of this story, we know that God has made due on every promise that he has made. We know that he sent his son, that his son atoned for our transgressions on the cross, that he rose from the grave just like he said, that he ascended on high just like he promised, and that he will one day return. We know that he has made known the appointed end for all of creation, the new heavens and the new earth, the consummation of his glorious kingdom. So in the face of our difficulty, may we look back and see all the ways that God has worked through the Bible, seeing his faithfulness to his promises. Not only that, may we look ahead because there is something that is coming, the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the consummation of God's kingdom, where well, on that day he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be destroyed. May we look ahead and may that reality, may that truth give us hope in our present pain. Beloved, if we're going to have hope in the midst of the trials, we need to know the promises of God. We need to be in God's word because it is God's word alone that anchors us in the storm. This means that we are to immerse ourselves in this book studying it, underlining, highlighting, and hiding it in our heart, memorizing that we may cling to it by faith. Because the reality is the trials will come. It will sneak upon us like a sucker punch. And rarely ever do you see the trials coming. But it is when you know God's promises when you cling to God's word, by doing so, it gives you a strong base and a strong chin to when you are hit by that trial and it hurts, it won't TKO you. This is where the church comes in. So we come alongside our hurting brothers and sisters. We share God's word and we pray for them to endure we seek to help them fix their gaze upon the only true God who is our help and our hope. For it is as we trust God that we are filled with hope and peace. Romans chapter 15 verse 13 says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
So in our hardship, we still have hope. May we hope persistently because of Jesus' finished work, because of his death and his resurrection and his promised return. Mordecai made known that deliverance will come. And for Christians, deliverance will come. Regardless of what season you're going through, deliverance will come. Either God is going to deliver you from it in this life, or he's going to use it to bring you to himself, and he's going to deliver you through it. The question for us is not if deliverance will come, it's how deliverance will come. And however God sees fit, the calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. Going back to what I said earlier, to not ever weep is to function as if you live in a fairy tale. The flip side of that is in the midst of the pain to only weep and not ever hope is to functionally deny the crux of our faith. One may wonder, well, how so? Because it is to live as if our Savior is still in the tomb. Christians, our hope resides in a person, and that's Jesus Christ. And if Jesus is dead, then we have no hope. But Jesus is alive, so we have a living hope. Beloved, get this. Our hope lasts as long as our Savior lives. Our hope lasts as long as our Savior lives. So in the intensity of the pain, it is real. And we weep, and yet we can weep with hope. Because our Savior has risen, he reigns, he's our help, and he will one day return. Psalm chapter 30 verse 5 says it this way, weeping may endure for a night. Now one thing having a newborn has taught me is that the night can be really long. Really, really, really long. The psalmist says weeping may endure for a night. And the night can last longer than we expect, and certainly longer than we like. But let living on God's creation remind you what it has taught us is that the night will end. And what comes after night? Morning. The psalmist says, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. It is in the morning that the sun, has, the sun rises. And so for us, even in our pain with tears, we need to live in the reality that the sun, the S-O-N, has risen. That he reigns and that he will help us and that he will get us through it. The providence of God will not spare us from pain but the love and faithfulness and care and compassion of God will get us through it. He will sustain us in the midst of it. So we can look to him as the psalmist says, I fix my eyes on the hills for where my help comes from. My help comes from the Lord. Look at verse 14. He says, if you keep silent, deliverance will come. And he goes on to say, who knows, perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai acknowledged the providence of God. God may have appointed Esther to her position for this moment. Esther could use, could leverage her position for the good of others her people, reverse the injustice of this wicked decree, 
God has placed her there for a purpose. And God sovereignly places all of us where we are for his purposes, for godly purposes. And so where has God placed you? If it's in politics, you can use a godly influence to oppose and restrain evil and help labor for a just society. If it's at work or in the home, I would encourage us to faithfully steward well the sphere that the Lord has placed us. Being obedient to him, knowing that he alone can use it for the purposes that he has set. Knowing that it is not in vain. Here we see hope, a persistent hope in the face of trials. It displays a trust in Jesus and a love for him. And we know that we can draw near to him in the midst of it because he himself is a man of sorrows. He's a sympathetic high priest. He knows the pain even more than we can imagine because the pain he experienced for us is far worse than any pain we will ever experience in this life. And not only that, but in our hurt, he is for us. Even when we don't feel that he is, he has always been for us and he always will be. Because in Christ, God has been for us from eternity past, and he will remain for us throughout eternity future. So we can trust him in the midst of the pain, hoping in him persistently, and may it lead to us praying fervently. Look at verse 15 and 16. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. Here's a turning point of the book. Esther begins to take the lead, and she gives the first command. She calls for a fast. As I said, prayer is likely accompanied with fasting as it is dependence and pleading, praying for God to intervene. The call to fasting and praying, it is a call to action. Prayer is not inaction. It is being active, going to God reorienting ourselves around him, seeking him, stating our requests, and submitting ourselves to his will while seeking to be faithful to him. Sadly, prayer is oftentimes the last resort when it should be the first response. Where we plead and beg for God's help, his strength, his wisdom, and his intervention. Beloved, how are you doing in praying? What's your prayer life like? If you're going to maintain hope in the trials of life, then we have to be fervent in our prayers, casting every care upon him and reminding ourselves of the faithfulness of God. Here we see that the mission is dangerous, and so Esther, she calls for a communal fast, for it is a matter of life and death. In cards on the table, I believe prayer is associated with that fast. I believe they sought God because they knew that God is so sovereign that he can intervene in such a way that he gives favor and that he can reverse this edict. Why do I say that? Well, the king's heart is not too hard for God. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, a king's heart is like channel in the Lord's hands. He directs it wherever he chooses. This edict is not too hard for God. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35 says, All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does what he wants with the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say, What have you done? 
It is because we know that God is sovereign. The question for us is why not pray? Knowing that he can change the situation and he can also change us. So in the hard times, may we pray. You want courage to be faithful in following Jesus? That comes through prayer. In our own strength, we will cower in fear, but in the strength of God, we can be courageous. In verses 16 and 17, Esther here, she resolved to fulfill Mordecai's request. Even at the expense of her own life, she would risk it to seek to save her people. And here, Esther points us to Jesus. For in the incarnation of the Son, he became the mediator. For Esther, death was possible. But for Jesus, death was certain. The very purpose of him coming is that he came that he may die. It was the only way deliverance from sin's slavery would come about. Esther sought to in reverse an injustice. Jesus came to bear the just penalty for our sins. Esther interceded for her people for a time. Jesus continues to intercede for his people now. Romans chapter, not, yeah, Romans chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 7 is making known that what Jesus is doing right now at the right hand of the Father is interceding for those he has saved. He is the mediator between God and man. He has given us salvation, and one day he will consummate it. So if you know yourself to not be a Christian, friends, I'm glad you are here. I want you to know that there's only one mediator. There's only one person who can save you from your sin and the wrath that you rightfully deserve. It is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. As the Son became man and died and atoned for our transgressions. As he rose from the grave three days later. He saves all who would turn and trust in him. And my encouragement for you this very day is to believe in Christ. That the just sentence for your sin you would be delivered from by the grace of God. You want to talk more, you can talk with any of our members. Beloved, bad news is inevitable. We will hear it. It is a tangible reminder that we are not yet home. It brings us to our knees, it calls us to cry out, for God, and it also causes us to yearn for the day when bad news will be no more. And because of Jesus, that day is coming soon. May we persevere with hope. Let's pray. My Father in heaven, God, you are gracious, mighty, and merciful. Father, you are compassionate that you come to us in our weakness and hurt. You strengthen your people according to your vast strength. You sustain us. You are the God of all comfort, and you comfort us in our affliction. God, may we hope in you in the midst of our pain and hurt. May we be reminded that our Savior will one day come that wounds will be binded, that tears will be wiped, and you will make all things new. These words are faithful and true, for they are your words that you had your servant write. May we hope in them. In Christ's name, amen.